0: Alright, so what I'm going to do this morning is going to be a little bit different than I guess what I would normally do. I'm going to teach a little bit more. Uh, I know I'm not much of a preacher. I know I'm usually a teacher. But what I'm going to do is, at the end of the day, I want you to walk away with some understanding on things. So this message is going to look a little bit different. So to open it up, I just want to have a real raw honest conversation um, with you guys. But before we dive into that, let me just give you a few facts. Because some of you might be sitting in here going like, why are we doing a whole series on anxiety? Because maybe you're that one person um, that doesn't wrestle with it. But let me give you a few statistics. Anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the U.S. Now watch this, affecting 40 million adults. That's just adults. In the U.S., 40 million adults. Now, this is only 40 million adults that actually have a prescription for some kind of medication. So there's probably double or triple that for people that have just actually never been diagnosed. They say about 18% of the American population has been diagnosed with some kind of anxiety or panic or some kind of disorder like that. But experts believe about 40% of the population struggles with anxiety. 40%. So that's almost half of the American population. That's almost one out of two. Every one out of two, somebody deals with some kind of anxiety. Anxiety actually costs the U.S. $42 billion every single year. $42 billion every single year. So let me help define this. For those of you that don't know what this looks like, you're saying, well, what is anxiety? What what are the symptoms of it? What does it look like? And this may help you um, to have some compassion on people that actually struggle with this. Um, Some of the symptoms of anxiety are simply panic disorder, social anxiety. So maybe you walk into the room and the first thing that you look for is the corner, right? You're like, there's a lot of people in here. So I'm gonna go find that corner over there because it looks real safe and nice. Um, Some of it is OCD, OCD, any, any like OCD freaks in here? Like you wipe the calendar and then you see like one little spot and your wife is going back and wiping it again. Um, I have this weird OCD with straight lines. Um, like I can't even look at my wife's Bible or hi- when she highlights anything because it's like, <laughs> I was like, oh my God, my OCD goes out of control. Um, some of it's depression. Some of it's sickness. It, it, literally, anxiety can actually cause you physical sickness it's known to give you headaches stomach issues sleep issues stress fibromyalgia chronic chronic pain substance abuse so some some of some of us in here are dealing with anxiety and the truth is we're just looking for some kind of relief right Uh, maybe you didn't want to become an alcoholic maybe you didn't want to use substances but you resorted to that measure because it's the only way that you know how to escape it's the only way that you know how to get some kind of relief. It's the only way that it kind of de-stresses you. And my hope is this, that um, the gospel offers a whole lot more than you just de-stressing. The, the gospel offers a whole lot more than you just trying to escape. The gospel offers a whole lot more than you just trying to, you know, close yourself off in a room and being by yourself. But the truth is, before we dive into this, I have a confession to make. Um, I'm a pastor, and I've, deal, I've dealt with worry. I've dealt with fear. I've dealt with anxiety at times in my life. Um, I've been so anxious and stressed before. I've given myself stomach ulcers. Um, anybody ever had those before? They're not fun. Um, so it, it really does. It can affect your physical body. Um, and I think a lot of people don't realize this. But here's the truth. This is, this is what my goal is Today. Um, I don't want to walk in here and just give you like a few like coin like scripture verses and you can go, great, that just set me free. Because that's not how this works. Because here, here's, here's what I don't want to do. The remedy is not, okay, I'm going to give you two scripture verses. You call your pastor in the morning and we'll see how you're doing tomorrow. Okay, like I don't want to give you like a little prescription. You go take two pills and then we come back and hopefully, hey, did that scripture work for you? Well, if it's not, we'll try this one. That's not what I want to do this morning. Because the truth is, some of us are so stuck in this kind of cycle, we don't even know how to get out. And the truth is, we, when we read the scriptures or when we pray, and even when we come in the church, we feel powerless. We read the scriptures and we say, like, I know God tells me to be anxious about nothing, but I'm still really anxious. I, I know God tells me that he doesn't give me a spirit of fear, but at the same time, I'm still extremely Fearful. Maybe you've opened up to a friend or a family member about your anxiety, and they've quoted this scripture to you, Philippians 4, 6. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And you hear that scripture, and you walk away from that, and you go, but I'm still really anxious, (laughs) and I'm still really scared, and I'm still really fearful. See, when you're struggling with anxiety, oftentimes you need much more than a scripture verse. You need much more than just, okay, a verse here, a verse here. We desperately need the scriptures, but we also need real people who have walked in our shoes. So at the end of the day, um, hopefully we can understand something. The reason that I showed you this story in the very beginning and not in the middle of of the sermon is because a real changed life is going to be the most powerful thing that you can get around. Because sometimes when you look at the scriptures and and they can just be empty words to you, it says don't be anxious about anything, but you're looking at the, the confines of your life and going, I have everything to be anxious about. But then when you get around somebody who's walked in your shoes, who's a real person that you can touch, you can look at, you can sit down, you can have coffee with them and say, how did you walk through these moments in your life? Like, what was it like when you closed yourself in the room and you felt like you couldn't leave for nine months? Like, how did you survive that? See, this is the importance of community. We stress this um, all throughout the life of this church that it is one of the most important things that we do. I don't think you realize it, but people that have real stories of real life change are going to be vital for you experiencing freedom. If you're dealing with anxiety, if you're dealing with fear, if you're dealing with worry, you have to get around change people. Because here's the truth change people change people. They do. The only reason that I can stand here on this stage at 30 years old, start a church at 28, it's not because I'm that good. It's only because of the fact that I've, I've been able to stand on the shoulders of far greater men than myself that have paved the way and I've just been able to sit in a room and I just sit around great guys and guess what? I got to do cool things because of all the things that they've done before me. And it's the same thing in your walk with Jesus. Man, if you're struggling with something, I-, I want to just beat this in your head this morning. You have to get around changed people. It's why life groups are so important. It's why community is so important. It's why Sundays are not enough it's why coming in here and even just hearing a sermon and saying, okay, man, maybe because maybe you're going to walk out here today and some things are going to make some sense for you, and you're going to go, okay, and now I understand why I deal with that. But what next? What now? Now that you've understood some things, now now I want to drive you into a place where you need to lean and learn to lean on people. Because the truth is, I don't find anything more. I find it so comforting when I walk through dark moments of my life to see somebody that I respect and, and can look at them and say, Man, I'm just walking through this dark moment. I'm dealing with a lot of fear. I'm dealing with a lot of anxiety. And they can look at me and say, You know what? I was there two months ago too. And all of a sudden, you don't feel as crazy. <laughs> you ever sat around in a, in a group? Of people. We did this with our, with our leaders um, this past Friday, and we just sat around and we said, man, how are, how are you guys doing? How, what's your spiritual life like? What's going on in your lives? And it's always like that tension for the first person. They're like, all right, who wants to go first? And it's like crickets. You know? <laughs> and, and, and I think usually the thoughts in their mind is like, well, I want to be open. I want to be honest about what I'm really walking through, but I don't want to sound crazy because I don't want to be the only person dealing with this kind of stuff. And then usually that first person talks and they get open and they get honest and then all of a sudden it just creates this chain effect of everybody else starts throwing up their stuff, right? And you realize the longer and longer you talk, they're like, man, he's dealing with this. He's dealing, okay, I'm not that crazy. And that's the importance of getting around people. I love this verse in First Thessalonians 2.8. This is Paul speaking. He said, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. What is he saying? He's saying, man, if if not only do we love you enough to teach you the scriptures, not only do we love you enough to tell you about Jesus, but we love you enough to share our lives with you. We love you enough to like do this thing together. At the end of the day, that we're all in this together. So here's the tr- here's the truth. If we want victory in anxiety, we have to understand the biblical anatomy of anxiety and how it works. So that's what I want to describe to you this morning. So to truly understand what we're dealing with, we must understand the deception that we're dealing with because here's the thing, anxiety is not something that is God-given. It is a distortion of what God created and the enemy has has turned it around. At the end of the day, God gave us emotions, God gave us feelings, God gave us moods, and those aren't necessarily a bad thing. So today, I want to start all the way at the beginning, all the way back into Genesis chapter 3, when God created man. And when God created man, not only did he create man and woman, but he also gave them something called emotions, he also gave them something called a mood. You get out of bed, and sometimes you look at your wife, and you're like, oh, she's in a mood today. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I sh- I'm going to be in trouble later. <laughs> that was just an example. I wasn't referring to anything. Um, she's really emotional right now and pregnant, so I'm going to, nah. Anyway, I'm just, get out of the hole, Zach. Um, <laughs> but understanding the Bible's approach to anxiety will help us build a foundation to help us overcome anxiety. So here's the truth. Is it possible that the anxiety that you deal with is because our emotions and our moods are simply out of order and the enemy is twisting them? So this is how things happen. This is all, the enemy has no new tricks. This is how he always does something. He takes a God-given emotion, a God-given mood, a God-given design, and he just twists it. Because some of you walk into rooms, you're like, I can't help but feel this way. I can't help but notice this thing. And God gave you that. It's just he begins to twist it. Anxiety, fear, panic, phobias, stress, even those words create anxiety, right? (laughs) So where do these distressing feelings come from? So here's my premise this morning. It's very simple. Every dysfunctional fallen emotion is a distortion of God's original pre-fall design. Meaning this every emotion, every mood, everything that God has given you, all the enemy does when he creates anxiety is he takes those God-given designs, those God-given emotions, and he just flips them around. Because God intended us to experience a mood that is the flip side of anxiety. So here's what it is. In the first garden... I'm going to talk about two different gardens. In the very first garden, God placed Adam in the garden and he told him to do a few things. The first thing that he told him to do, he said, I want you to work it and I want you to take care of it. That's in Genesis 2.15 if you want to go back and read it later. Now the Hebrew word for take care of and keep means this, literally to guard and protect. So here's what he's telling Adam. Now, this is gonna make sense in a moment. He's saying, listen, I put you in the garden to keep it, to guard it, and I want you to keep watch. I want you to be vigilant over this garden. I want you to guard it. Do everything that you can to make sure this garden stays safe. It's yours, and you're the soldier. You're the warrior. You make sure that you protect it. God called Adam to be a soldier that remains vigilant. And he created Adam and us with the emotion of vigilance. So vigilance is simply you're aware of something. So if God said, Adam, here's your sword or whatever it is, here's your staff, protect this garden. Everybody, you know, ever been been to the mall and you know the mall cop who's like, he's been given a badge, but he doesn't have a gun yet. But he does have pepper spray, but he feels like he has a whole lot of authority. He's like, I will save this entire, and like, you know, you're like, dude, I could... I could demock your neck in like two seconds and take you out. If you don't know what that move is, YouTube it. It's pretty awesome. Um, but it's this guy that has this authority of this mall, this, this is mine. Nobody's going to take it over, and I'll do whatever I, I need to do to defend it. This is how Adam feels about this garden. The root word of vigilant, vig, simply means to be like a soldier, to keep watch. And God has, a, watch this, God has wired us to be aware of our surroundings so that we can be on guard, so that we can protect ourselves, so that we can keep watch. Vigilance is the God-given emotion that urges us to act quickly in a response to threat. It's the God-given emotion. It's it's that emotion whenever you're a mother and all of a sudden you feel something and you're like, I know I have four kids, but I know I sense there's only three behind me. (laughs) Vigilance is that feeling of, of when you walk into a room and maybe you show up at somebody's house and you look at somebody in the corner of your eye and you're like, that person is just staring at me. They must be mad at me. Vigilance is that feeling, that hyper, that, that awareness of when you walk into something and you immediately know something is wrong. Men, have you ever walked in the house after a long day of work and you walk in the house and the kids are going crazy and you know your wife is exhausted and you walk in and you're like, I feel something. I don't know what it is, but there's something, All right? Right? That's vigilance. There is this sensitivity, this design, this emotion that God has given you that makes you aware of your surroundings. But if we're not careful, instead of vigilance making us warriors, it can turn us into warriors, and this is where anxiety comes from. So vigilance, watch this. Is the God-given emotion, and all the enemy does is he twists it, and instead of you being vigilant, he causes you to be hyper-aware. So now you walk into a room, and you scan everything. Now you walk into a room, and you're aware of absolutely everything. You're constantly scanning. You're constantly looking. You're constantly looking at another. I know they're mad at me. This, this day, she said this about me last. And all of a sudden, it creates this anxiety. So you have to get this. Anxiety is simply vigilance distorted. And twisted by the enemy. The enemy has taken a God-given emotion and design that God gave us in the first garden to keep watch over our families. To keep watch over our jobs. To keep watch over our personal lives. And he's just twisted it and he's making us hyper-aware. Anxiety is simply vigilance distorted. Anxiety is the flip side of vigilance. And now watch this. It attempts to cripple and disarm God's warriors, and it turns us into, warrior, into warriors. So what God intended us to be a soldier, he intended us to be aware of something, we end up worrying about everything. Let me give you an example of this. Maybe you know this if you've been in the church long enough, but I grew up... Um, well, not grew up. I've been around. Um, I've had a brother for a long time who struggled with substances, and uh, thank God by the grace of God, right now I think he's on the up and up, and um, he should be home. I think in June, actually. But for about six, seven years, I mean, he's just he struggled with substance abuse, and I remember um, in his in his struggle when he would come home in the house, there was always one of two emotions that were going to take place. One, he was so high. Or he was so out of it that he'd come home and he he was just super happy, right? Happy about everything. So you kind of, you know, you could interact with him. You could get along with him when he was in that moment, when he was in that mood. But then there was a, a flip side of things. If he would come in home late and maybe he had been trying to turn his life around and he had just, you know, he blew it and he took some pills or he smoked or whatever he did and he came home and instead of being happy, he was angry, super angry. So what happens? My mom and my dad and myself, all of us, we never know how to respond because we don't know if he's going to be happy. We don't know if he's going to be angry. So what does it create? It creates this hyper sensitivity, this hyper awareness when we're around him. We're going, okay, how do I react? I don't know if he's going to be happy. I don't know if he's going to be angry. Some of you may understand this if you grew up in a home with a mother or father that was an alcoholic. Maybe you grew up as a child and you, okay, I don't know. Can I invite my friends over tonight? I'm I don't know if I can invite my friends over, if my dad's going to be happy. Is he going to be happy drunk or is he going to be angry drunk? You don't know. And, and so if you grew up in a situation like this, what it probably did is it probably created a hyper-awareness in your life. So the enemy took a God-given design, a God-given vigilance, and it twisted it maybe at a young age. Maybe, maybe your parents were always at each other's throats. So when you hear arguing now, it just flips up of, oh, somebody's going to fight. And maybe they're not, but because you're hyper aware of things now, because of something that happened to you in your childhood, what does it do? It begins to create anxiety. So here's the truth. In these moments, the remedy to take two scriptures and call your pastor in the morning is not what you need, right? The remedy is understanding where your anxiety comes from and understanding what is the enemy distorting. What lies are you believing that is causing you to be anxious? See, and this anxiety is simply vigilance out of control. It's a hyper-awareness of your surroundings. You continually scan your environment worried about the what-ifs of life. Simply put, anxiety is toxic scanning. Anxiety is toxic scanning. You're always worried about the what-ifs, the things that you cannot control. Now, it's also the flip side of that anxiety is also vigilance that is trying to maintain control in a self-protective and self-sufficient way so so here's the truth the reason that some of you don't want to let your anxiety go is because your worry makes you still feel like you're in control well if i worry about it long enough at least i'm still controlling the situation because if I let it go and, and I just completely give it to God and I don't, I'm not in the know about everything and I'm not worrying about everything, then I don't have any control of it, right? Anxiety is vigilance minus faith in God. Minus the faith side. So God called Adam to guard the garden. Now watch this. He failed. He stood by Eve as Satan tempted her and did nothing. Now we don't, we usually pass over this in the scriptures, right? We, look, we, we, we always blame the woman. It's what men are good at. We always, we, we always look, man, if Eve just would have never bit the apple, then we would have all been fine. I don't know if you know this about the story. Maybe nobody's ever told you this before. But do you realize in the story, as she's being tempted by Satan, Adam is standing right next to her? While she bit the apple, her husband is there watching. So what happened? He failed to protect the garden. He failed to be vigilant. He failed to fight. He failed to do what God told him to do. So, when this happens to us, anxiety kicks in, and there's two responses that are going to take place, and we see this in the story of Genesis. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to go ahead and read through That's why I'm just kind of paraphrasing through some of the scriptures. So if you want to go back and read this story later on, it's found in Genesis chapter 3. But anxiety results in fight or flight behavior. So you have two responses from anxiety. And we see this in the first garden. Number one, we see Adam hid in the garden because he was afraid. So when God comes looking, man, Adam, Eve, where are you after they bit the fruit? His first response is what? I'm out of here. So oftentimes when we deal with anxiety, we go, people don't need them. <laughs> I'm out. I don't want people to see me like this. I don't want people to see me at my weakest. I don't want people to see me at the state. So you run, you hide. The second response is fight behavior, number two. So he realized, okay, I can't hide behind this tree long enough because I've looked pretty ridiculous in these fig leaves. When God starts saying, Adam, where are you? Okay, I can't hide, so what am I going to do? I'm going to fight now. So what does he do? The second thing is, he blames his wife. He blames his wife. So the first thing, he runs and hides, and he realizes, okay, I can't stay hidden behind this tree long enough. What does he do? He turns around and says, well, God, this woman you gave me, she made me do it. And really, God's saying, no, you failed to protect the garden. You failed to be vigilant. So I want you to notice something here. If we could just create a family tree real quick of anxiety, I want you to see what this actually looks like. In anxiety, there's some emotions that we deal with. They're, they're actually kind of cousins of anxiety. The first one is this anger. This is the flight response to threat attack. So, in anxiety, what do we do? We take matters into our own hands, in our own power, for our own benefit. I don't know if you noticed this, but the angry, tough guy is just as fearful and terrified as the anxious person. The response is just different. But it's the same emotion. Then there's anxiety. This is the flight response to threat. Threat. Here we take our safety into our own hands. It's what I said earlier. If I worry enough, at least I still feel I have control. But then there is, remember, there's the God given emotion that God gave us, and this is vigilance. This is the faith response to threat. This is the emotion that we were wired and designed to feel rather than anxiety. We were designed to feel vigilance, to be aware. This is the faith response. This is where we engage with Christ and this is where we protect the garden. And in this moment, in this moment of vigilance, this is where we place our safety in God's hands and we take on his plan, not our own. And this is difficult because what does it do? It requires us letting go. It requires us submitting and surrendering our worries, our insecurities, and our fears over to Jesus So God says this, God says, be vigilant, be alert, take your stand, stand firm, and I'll fight your battles for you. But this is what anxiety says, what if I can't handle this? I have to run, I have to fight, I have to self-protect. See, anxiety is scanning without standing. It is a continual worry and a perpetual state of alarm that never resolves itself. So it's a continual worry, continual state of panic, a continual state of everything's not going to be okay, you constantly scanning your environment, but there's never any resolve. And the only way that you're going to have any kind of resolve is by submitting and surrendering that to God. And here's the truth. For 99.9% of the people in here, you cannot submit and surrender to God your anxiety on your own. You're going to need other people. That's why I started it with you need other people to help fight with you cuz sometimes the faith that you have is not going to be strong enough to carry you to the next step and sometimes a little coffee cup scripture and memory verse is not going to be enough to get you through the next season of life you need other people that will help lift your arms up and carry you through so here's the question how do i deal with my anxiety when my fear is too great so maybe you're the person in here saying, Well, look, this is great. I, I kind of understand now where my anxiety is coming from. It's vigilance out of control. But I'm scared to death. I'm, I'm scared to open up to other people because I tried that before and it didn't go too well for me. Or I'm scared to submit myself to this process because what if God doesn't come through? Or, or, or maybe... Maybe you're in here and you're saying, if I submit myself to God, is he actually going to carry me through to the next step? Because God, if God is anything like my father, my father left when I was five years old, never came back. See, I think that's the hardest thing for some of us sometimes is we look at our own fathers and we look at our own personal relationships with our mother, our father, our aunts, our uncles, whatever it may be. and we look at those things, And we say, if God is anything like that, then I want nothing to do with him. And the truth is, God is nothing like your father. See, this is where knowing the scriptures is incredibly important, because if you know them, God is a father who never leaves you, never forsakes you, never abandons you. And so listen, I, I promise you this. Wherever you're at right now, you can fully trust in Jesus. He's the only father that will not let you down. He's the only father that will not disappoint you. See, fear, here's the thing. Fear drives us to face the fact that we're helpless and that ultimately our safety is out of our control. So if you can see maybe what God is trying to do in your fear right now, it actually can be a good thing. God's trying to say, hey, just let go of the wheel. Let go of the reins. Anxiety is simply fear out of control. And at the end of the day, fear it compels us to face our neediness. So here's the, here's the even bigger question. When you're so anxious and you're so grappled by fear, this is what you've got to answer. Where do we turn when we're gripped by fear? Because this oftentimes is going to determine if we're going to get free from that fear, that anxiety or not. Where do we turn when anxiety just overwhelms us? Where do we turn when fear overwhelms us? If it's to alcohol, if it's to substances, if if it's to sex, if it's to relationships, those at the end of the day are going to leave us empty Again. And here's what sin does in that moment, in that substance, in that abuse, in that relationship, in that sexual fantasy, in whatever it is. In that moment, here's the truth, you feel some relief. But then you need it again, right? It's temporary, but it doesn't last. And what God's trying to say is ultimately, I'm a good father that gives you a relief that none of these things could ever give you. I'm going to give you a hope and peace that you've never experienced before. See, anxiety happens when we turn to ourselves rather than God. Oftentimes, anxiety is us saying, God, get out of the way. I'm God of my own life. I'll worry about my own worries. But at the end of the day, if you can understand, God said, No, listen, when I died on the cross, I became a professional worrier for you. I'll worry about your worries. Through faith, we face the reality of our neediness by trusting in the unseen reality of a God who cares and controls our life. So, briefly, I I talked about the first garden. This is where God gave us that emotion of vigilance. And where the enemy twisted vigilance and turned it into anxiety and fear and worry. But see, there's also a second garden that happened. In the second garden, Jesus faced anxiety and fear head on, in the midst of being overwhelmed. So the first garden was the Garden of Eden. It was God's original design, how everything was supposed to be perfect, and the emotions and the moods that he gave us. God gave them to us. And then the enemy distorted it and twisted it. But in the second garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus dies, Jesus is overwhelmed with anxiety, overwhelmed with fear. He, he, he's grown up in the Roman Greco world. He, he knows what a crucifixion looks like. He knows how horrible and how painful the death is going to be. And the night before, he's sitting in the garden and he's saying, God, if there is anything that you can do to make this cup pass from me, I'll take it. <laughs> Basically, here's what he's saying. If there is another way out besides the cross, I'll take that one. And it says that he's so anxious that two things happen. One, he's sweating blood. And the second thing, it says God the Father literally sends two angels down from heaven to encourage him and strengthen him. That's insane to me. Like, Jesus, the creator, needs the created to come down and encourage him. (laughs) That's That's some intense anxiety right there. So Jesus is dealing with all of this fear, all this worry, all this anxiety. He's clearly at his weakest moment. But what does godly vigilance look like in this moment? Because Jesus displays it. He's super aware of everything that's about to happen, everything that's about to go on. But Jesus modeled constructive vigilance in the Garden of Gethsemane. So here's what happened. He faced his dread of death and placed his faith in his father. In that moment, he goes, you know what? This has to happen, and there's nothing that I can do to get out of it. In this moment, I can't change the circumstances. So God, I trust you. If the only way for me to save humanity is to die on the cross, then I, then I accept my fate, and that's what it's going to have to be. And here's, here's the most liberating, freeing thing you can grapple your head around Sometimes. It's okay sometimes to not change the circumstances. And if you can just breathe for a moment and go, okay, there's nothing I can do about this. I can't do anything. And then you just walk away. (laughs) But here's what happens. We look at situations that are completely out of our control, that are completely out of our hands, and we continue to try to fix them. But Jesus modeled this constructive vigilance. He saw a situation and said, there's nothing I can do about it. And Jesus entrusted himself to the father who raises the dead. I'm going to die, but I'm giving myself over to a father that will raise me from the dead. So there's constructive vigilance, and then there's destructive vigilance. Now, the disciples clearly modeled destructive fear and anxiety. And I kind of love them for it. (laughs) At one point, if you know the story... When Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the Roman guards come up and they say, where's Jesus? And Peter's like, oh, you, you ain't taking my Jesus. He, he grew up on the south side of the tracks in rain. <laughs> right next to Mike Richard. Um, <laughs> so, so Peter says, no, you're not taking Jesus. So what does he do? He gives into that fear of that moment. He takes a sword out and he chops a guy's ear off. Now, what, is that, what does that solve? Nothing. Although Peter was kind of like, who wants some more? <laughs> he, he may have felt good in that moment, but did it change the situation at all? No. Jesus was still betrayed. Jesus still had to succumb to what he had to succumb to, and Peter's fear did not change anything. Now, watch this. Not only did he cut a guy's ear off, there's another point where Peter, so that was the, fir- the first thing he chose, what he, d- he chose to do? He chose to fight. Remember the fight or flight response? So the first one he chose, he chose to fight. I'm going to chop a dude's ear off. The second one, he chose to flee. When Jesus is getting beaten before he dies on the cross, three times what happens? They ask Peter, hey, do you know Jesus? No, I have no idea who that is. Three times he denies him. Three times he's trying to run away. Three times he's trying to say, I have nothing to do with this man. Because if I claim this man as somebody that I know, then I'm going to receive the same penalty that he is. So no, I don't know him. So Peter has this fight or flight response. And the thing that I love about this story is simply this. In their fear, in their anxiety, it changed nothing about the circumstances. Nothing about the situation changed. Zero. Zero. All the disciples displayed an inability to hold vigilance, even while Jesus is sweating blood in the garden. What was the last thing he told them before he goes up to pray by himself? Hey, guys, I just need you to pray. I need you to pray for me. I'm going to go up here. I'm going to be with the Father. What do they do? Yeah, God, we got you. No problem. They all fall asleep. (laughs) They all sleep. They all are not vigilant. Jesus even tells him in Matthew twenty six forty, could you not keep vigil with me for one hour? Could you not just stay awake for at least one hour? So here's the, my whole premise this morning. We experience the power of life and death in two gardens. The Garden of Eden or the Garden of Gethsemane. If we live by the power of the flesh, we will continually find ourselves in the Garden of Eden. If we allow our anxieties and our worries to define us and to control us, we will continually find ourselves in the Garden of Eden where the enemy is taking vigilance and distorting it into anxiety, and it will be a never-ending cycle. But if we realize that in the Garden of Gethsemane, God paid for all of our debts, that he paid for that anxiety, that distortion that the enemy is twisting, then we'll find ourselves in the Garden of Gethsemane where we say, okay, now I can get somewhere. Now I can experience freedom. Now I can get to the place where my fear is no longer fear, it's courage. Now I can get to the place where my anxiety is no longer anxiety, it's just simply vigilance. It's a God-given emotion, it's a God-given design that he's given me. So if we live by the power of the Spirit, then we live a faith-based life that follows the second garden. So how do we apply this to our everyday lives? Number one, when anxiety strikes... Where does it drive you? When anxiety comes this week, because it'll come, when worry comes this week, where does it drive you? Does it drive you to zone out on the couch? Does it drive you to just numb? I don't want to think about life. Does it drive you just to continue doing the same old emotions or does it push you into seeking community? Does it push you to want to seek other believers? Does it push you to want to get closer to Jesus? See, oftentimes, and and listen, I know Christians are very famous for this man, the devil, he's just been been getting me this week, I'm telling you, he's just been throwing attack left and right. Honestly, most of the time, the devil just distorts one thing in your life and then he walks away and he leaves you to yourself. He doesn't have to do anything else. My dad used to tell a story, I've heard it a billion times, I remember being a kid, I'm like, oh, God, Dad, if you tell that story one more time, and now I'm telling it. <laughs> but he, used to, he always used to tell the story when he was preaching while I was growing up and sitting in the audience. He would always say, you know what? I, he said there used to be this Baptist preacher that would come out of his church every single Sunday, and, and, the, and Satan was sitting on his doorsteps crying he's like, you know, what's up, Satan? Like, what's wrong? He said, man, everybody in that church is blaming me for everything that they've ever done. And he said, I didn't do anything, (laughs) nothing. And this is exactly how the enemy works. All he has to do is if he just can twist that vigilance and turn you to be an anxious person, he walks away and you'll self-explode on your own. So here's the truth. Where do you turn in the middle of your anxiety? If the enemy has you turning back towards just numbing, back towards substances, back towards depression, back towards isolating. And he's got you. He doesn't have to do anything. He just leaves you. Think about the last time that fear stalked you. Think about the last time that worry came after you. Did you respond by trusting God or did you respond by trusting yourself and protecting yourself? So here's all I want to do. This morning, we'll talk through some solutions. We'll talk through some things that we can, that we can get through anxiety. We'll, we'll talk about that next week. But I just want you to understand where this is coming from and the lie that the enemy is using to manipulate this for you. Because if we can understand that and if we can start there, then you can have a foundation that you can start to work on, that you can start to change some things in your life. So here's what I want to do. Simply this, when you find yourself driven towards fear, driven towards worry, driven towards anxiety, man, run towards the body of Christ. Run towards community, run towards other believers, run towards Jesus rather than isolating yourself. Some of you may not even realize it, but the only reason maybe that you isolate yourself or you pull away from community or you pull away from relationships is because you believe that you're doing yourself a service by protecting yourself, right? Because everybody else has hurt you. Everybody else has hurt me, so I, just need, I need to be on my own for a little while. And God didn't design it that way. Even that emotion that you're feeling in that moment, that self-protecting, is not something that God's—God designed us to be around people regardless of your personality. Some people, well, I'm just not as charismatic as other people. I don't like being around people as much. Listen, your personality is not an excuse for not getting into community. At the end of the day, believe it or not, here's the truth. When, when, when a few years ago, I was not the most outgoing person at all. I, I can, I'm totally the guy that can go sit down at a restaurant and eat by myself and like be completely fine. Some people are like, man, are, Zach, are you okay? I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> I'm having a blast right now. But, but at the end of the day... There were some things, even the way that God's wired me, like I had to teach myself things. I had to realize, man, I, I need people. I need other people. I need to be around people. I need to share a meal with people. I need to have coffee with people. I need that. You need it too. I find it so interesting that even God does not do this life alone. This is the power of the Trinity God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Even when He created the earth, He was not by Himself. He doesn't choose to do life alone, and yet somehow we think that we can. When even God the Father doesn't do it Himself. Listen, you need people. If you want to deal with your anxiety, if you want to deal with your fear, if you want to deal with your worry, man, dive into this church, plant yourself here. Be a part of what we're doing. Be a part of the life change that God is doing. The best, listen, the best time to get involved in this church is right now. Man, God's doing so many things. The church is growing. People's lives are changing. It's exciting. This is the best time to get involved.